Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have another very insightful interview for you. And in fact, until the end of the year, my weekly podcast episodes will all feature interviews with some really incredible guests. And then for the first few episodes of 2023, you can expect me to be back for some solo podcasts. In today's episode, I'm talking to Martin Refalo, who is a coach and education manager at an online coaching company based in Melbourne, Australia, called JPS Health and Fitness. He's also currently pursuing a PhD in exercise science. And one of the topics that he's been doing research on is the influence of proximity to failure on muscle hypertrophy. And that's exactly why I was keen to have him on the podcast. We talked about how important proximity to failure may be for muscle growth and how to implement it practically into your program in order to potentially make the best gains and recover as well as possible. Without further ado, enjoy the interview. Martin, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So today I want to have a chat with you and pick your brain about training to failure. But first of all, I usually start a podcast by with an introduction to the audience. So I'd like to know who you are, what you do and why you're so awesome at it. For sure. So yeah, my name is Martin Rafalo. I work for a education and coaching company called JPS Health and Fitness in Melbourne, Australia. So we do a lot of face-to-face coaching. We also do online coaching. We run education seminars as well. And my role as education manager is to not only coach clients, but to help develop our content and to facilitate our education seminars nationally and internationally, which is an awesome part of my job. I am also currently completing a PhD in exercise science, and I have also completed a bachelor's and a master's degree, which has eventually um, led me to the PhD. And my goal really with the PhD is to improve the equality and the practical applicability of research studies, looking at resistance training outcomes. And specifically, my area is muscle hypertrophy. And today we're going to be speaking about a a key aspect of my PhD, which is the influence of proximity to failure on muscle hypertrophy. And one of the reasons I'm interested in this topic is because I've spent a lot of time in the gym myself. Um, I think I started training when I was about 16 years old and I've been in the industry now coaching for about eight years. And uh, I've also competed in bodybuilding twice myself. So back in 2016 and 2017. So there has been a lot of, there was a lot of practical foundation here that has led me to, to research and has led me to research uh, the influence of proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy is always something I've been interested in. I think that that key question of, you know, how hard should you train to build muscle? It's such a integral question in the fitness industry that gets asked a lot. And like I said, that's something I've always been interested in. And science, I think, is one of the best tools we have to understand the root of certain topics and, and and understand how we can best apply them in practice. I think scientific thinking is is really important to bridge the gap between you know theory and practice. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with my PhD. At the end of the day, you know, I'm a coach first and foremost, 
Um, I'm a bodybuilder, or at least I was a bodybuilder. Now I spend a lot of my time coaching bodybuilders. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to having a discussion today about a topic that you know I'm quite passionate about and, and hopefully we can speak about some practical applications that all the listeners can take away. Thank you for the introduction. I'm really glad that you brought up how important it is for you to marry science with practical application because at the end of the day, I and my li- I think the majority of my listeners as well, we're not scientists. I personally follow science and I'm very interested in it. Um, however, at the end of the day, what I want to know and what I think everybody wants to know is what do we do with these research findings? How do we actually improve the quality of our training? And I wanted to have you on today because of a recent systematic review with meta-analysis that you published just uh, at the beginning of this month, I believe. Mm-hmm. And for the listeners, this is titled Influence of Resistance Training, Proximity to Failure on Skeletal Muscle Hypertrophy, a Systematic Review with Meta-Analysis. It is open mm-hmm. access, so everybody can read it. And uh, listeners, you'll find it in the description notes of this episode. So Martin, you talked a little bit about why you're personally interested in training to failure, you wanted to address the question of how hard do we need to train in order to elicit muscle hypertrophy? And what I want to know first and foremost is intuitively, everybody usually says, well, we need to train hard. And then you wanted to know exactly, well, how hard? But mm-hmm. I want to know first and foremost for the listeners, since it's uh, my, it's the first time I get the opportunity to ask to an expert about this. Why do we need to train hard enough? What does failure do for specifically muscle hypertrophy instead of other mm-hmm. fitness goals or fitness mm-hmm. adaptations? Great question. And I think before we answer that specific question, we first have to understand what hard actually means. So like I mentioned earlier, that question, how hard should you train? You know, how hard is too hard? These questions get thrown around a lot. And like you said, we all intuitively know we have to train hard and we all intuitively know we have to train harder over time to build muscle. But but what does hard actually mean? There's there's many ways we can make training hard. There's definitely many ways we can make training harder week to week, but not all of these ways, not all of these methods that we can employ are conducive to muscle hypertrophy. So for example, uh, and quite an easy example is shortening your rest periods, right? If you shorten your rest periods, arguably you are making training harder. Now, is that the type of hard that we are after if we want to build muscle? Maybe not, right? We can perform squats on a BOSU ball and increase the stability demands, right? And increase the demands on our balance and our coordination. Now, we could also argue that in a way, that would be harder. Uh, squatting on a BOSU ball would be harder than squatting with your feet planted on the floor and a barbell on your back, right? In a, in a way, it is harder, but is it conducive to muscle hypertrophy? Likely not. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people get confused when they hear the word hard and they don't actually know how to, pr- how to create a, a practical basis for the application of that term on the gym floor in relation to their goals. Now, the context of today's discussion is is muscle hypertrophy. And so it's important that when you're using that term hard and you're instructing people to train harder, it's important you give them almost a criteria Mm -hmm. to follow, right? So what actually qualifies as hard training for muscle hypertrophy? We need to create a criteria for it or else people are at risk of being led astray with their programming or with the execution of their program. And this comes back to the examples I provided earlier. So I think when we're looking at the term hard for muscle hypertrophy, I think there's three main components that we can implement into this criteria to better understand what is actually going to qualify as hard training in the context of muscle hypertrophy. So one of these components would be you know, the volume that we're completing. We can think of volume as being set volume or uh, performance volume slash volume load. 
of course, if we're not performing enough volume to stimulate adaptations, then our training simply isn't hard enough. If we're only completing one set for our biceps per week, right, if we're trained individuals, that is likely insufficient to stimulate the hypertrophy adaptations that we are after. Right, so that is one component of this mm -hmm. criteria that we're trying to, to develop for the term hard in the context of muscle hypertrophy. Another component would potentially be your exercise execution, right? So if you're spending most of your time squatting only half the way down, so, you know, only half of your full range of motion, if you were to then take that squat through a full range of motion and, and squat lower, you are arguably making training harder in a way that is conducive to muscle hypertrophy. And that's the key difference. Um, this, that's a key difference. The example I provided earlier with squats on the BOSU ball, yes, that could make your training harder, but it's not conducive to muscle hypertrophy because it isn't creating a larger tension stimulus, right? So what we're after here, if the listeners have, haven't gathered yet, is really finding ways to increase the exposure of our muscle fibers to mechanical tension. Taking your exercises through a full range of motion, right, is one way you can do that. And that qualifies as training that is hard for muscle hypertrophy, right? Another way in which we can uh, think about exercise execution is increasing the stability of the exercises that we're performing. So again, stepping away from the BOSI ball, and keeping our feet planted on the floor or jumping into a hack squat machine or a leg press where we actually have external stability being provided by the machines. So that's another component that we can think about. And then the third component that I think works well in this or fits well in this criteria is our proximity to failure. And that's the, the component that I'm mostly interested in and that I'm researching in my PhD. So Proximity to failure refers to uh, the, really, we can quantify it as our repetitions in reserve. And most of the listeners are probably quite familiar with that. And we have good reason to believe that our proximity to failure influences the amount of mechanical tension that we expose our muscle fibers to within each set that we perform. Because it really does influence the number of repetitions we perform with a given load. So if we instruct an individual to train to momentary muscular failure, we are by default maximizing the amount of mechanical tension they can achieve within a given set, right? Because we are performing as many reps as we possibly can with a given load. And so understanding proximity to failure can help us quantify the level of stimulus we're achieving within each given set we perform. And again, if we push closer to failure, well, great. That's also going to qualify as hard training for muscle hypertrophy because we are increasing the tension stimulus uh, in the active musculature that is being trained. So, so to me, using that lens to, 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 to focus on the term hard is a, an efficient way to program for hypertrophy now, using that lens can help you program for hypertrophy and also help you execute that program in a manner that is going to be most conducive to your goals so hopefully people are starting to understand you know what the term hard should actually mean when they're using it in the context of hypertrophy goals and of course we can use that term hard in other ways dependent on the goals of any given individual that we're working with. So it's important to realize that when we're looking at proximity to failure, which is the key topic of, of this discussion, that's going to influence the stimulus achieved within a given set, right? So our exercise ex execution will influence the stimulus achieved per repetition, right? The volume that we perform will influence the stimulus achieved within a given session or over the course of a week. Our proximity to failure, however, operates on the level of a given set. But when we're performing resistance training, when we perform a workout, we obviously do perform multiple sets. And so we can't only pay respect to the effect of proximity to failure on the stimulus within each set. We have to pay respect 
to the short-term responses that are also incurred when we perform these sets and how these short-term responses can influence the stimulus achieved in subsequent sets that we perform. Now, the main short-term response that I'm interested in is neuromuscular fatigue. Of course, muscle damage, for example, is a short-term response. Perceived discomfort is another short-term response. And these short-term responses, they can potentially be negative to our long-term goals. They can, they can play a negative role or have a negative influence to our long-term progress. Now, of course, they are byproducts of hard training. So we have to accept to some extent that we're going to incur neuromuscular fatigue and we're going to experience muscle damage. But if we're looking to design a program that is going to take our clients one step closer to their goals, that is going to be sustainable, that is going to be realistic, and that is going to be hard enough, but not too hard to the point where our subsequent sessions get compromised or to the point where we have to deload, for example. If we want to do that, we really have to understand these concepts. We have to understand how proximity to failure influences the stimulus within each set, but also how it influences neuromuscular fatigue because the neuromuscular fatigue consequent to resistance training can actually influence the stimulus achieved in subsequent sets. Right? And you can imagine this yourself. If you were to perform, if you were to walk into the gym and you're doing a leg session, if you, you had a hack squat prescribed as your first exercise and you took all three sets to failure, your performance across the sets would, would plummet and you would still have to do some walking lunges maybe, maybe some leg extensions, and arguably you wouldn't be able to perform to the best of your abilities. And that may compromise the stimulus that you achieve in your session as a whole because as the sets are going by you're incurring more fatigue and that's diminishing your ability to produce force and at the end of the day mechanical tension right which is that key stimulus for muscle hypertrophy that refers to the forces that are being transmitted across a muscle fiber across particularly type 2 muscle fibers both laterally and longitudinally and neuromuscular fatigue directly diminishes your ability to produce force, particularly in those fast twitch fibers that are prone, that are more prone to hypertrophy than, than slow twitch fibers, right? They are more sensitive to fatigue. And so if we know proximity to failure can increase the neuromuscular fatigue incurred from the sets we perform, right, then, then we must pay respect to that when we're, when we're programming. And, and hopefully that is allowing you to, to build a bigger picture or a better picture or a complete picture as to, you know, where my head is at with proximity to failure. Yes, it influences the stimulus achieved within a given set, but also the neuromuscular fatigue incurred. And that can influence how effective subsequent sets are. And that is what I'm trying to research uh, in my PhD. So... I've recently completed a study that looked at the influence of proximity to failure on neuromuscular fatigue. And next year, I'll be looking at, a, at, at how proximity to failure influences muscle hypertrophy over time. Right, so I'm looking at both sides of the equation here. And recently, the meta-analysis was focused more so on muscle hypertrophy and was conducted to, to provide an overview of what we currently know. But of course, there are limitations to what we currently know. There are research gaps, and that is the goal of my PhD, is to fill those research gaps and provide an improved understanding right, as to how proximity to failure influences fatigue and hypertrophy. And hopefully from that, we can extract some information that can improve our ability to program and to execute a training program conducive to muscle hypertrophy. Right? And, and really, the, the end goal there is to help better answer that question of how hard should you train, right? We're, we're, the goal is to, to clarify an answer to that question that people can take and practically apply on the gym floor. So that was a brilliant answer, fantastically explained, and he actually answered so many questions that I had. So for the listeners, as a quick recap, we started with a definition of hard. Um, and so hard, 
relative to the goal of muscle hypertrophy. So how hard you need to train if you want to build muscle. And um, the three components that you identify that can make training hard are volume, exercise execution, and proximity to failure. And in particular, proximity to failure helps us quantify the tension stimulus within a set. And we, can, we also need to balance that tension stimulus with the fatigue that going, the neuromuscular fatigue that going so close to failure or to coming close to failure can generate. Because mm -hmm. if we accrue too much fatigue, that will diminish our abilities to elicit a, an appropriate stimulus over time. Would that be a proper and accurate summary of what you said? For sure. And I'm really glad that you started with a definition because as you highlighted in your meta-analysis, a limitation of the research we had, we've had so far is that it's not very clear what muscular failure even is. So if we can segue into a definition of muscular failure, what does it actually mean to achieve mm -hmm. failure? how it's defining the literature and how you define it, I think that mm -hmm. would be really valuable for the audience. Yeah, I think providing definitions for terms and then providing a practical basis for those terms is is really important in the fitness industry. And And one of my concerns is that many critical terms that people use a lot uh, do lack clarity so the term hard is one of them uh earlier this year i had the opportunity to go to singapore with uh some of my colleagues at jps and we conducted quite a few presentations at an exercise science conference and one of my presentations was titled maximizing training intensity for muscle hypertrophy and my first slide what i did was i asked a a room of 30 people uh, what does intensity mean in resistance training? And I had a mm -hmm. quiz. They they all provided their answers, and their answers popped up on the projector screen. Now, my suspicions were that there would be a high amount of variability in the answers that people provide, because I know, based off discussions that I've had with people, that the term intensity is the, the definitions that people apply to the term intensity in the fitness industry, they do vary. And intensity is a term that has been around for quite some time. And you'll you'll see it in textbooks, you'll see it in lectures, you'll see it at university. But practitioners, coaches still, still don't know how to clarify the term and, and how to practically apply it on the gym floor in the best way possible. Right, so the question was, what does intensity mean in resistance training for muscle hypertrophy? And some of the answers were proximity to failure, which is good. Some of the answers were volume, you know, more time under tension. Um, yeah, there, there were whole, there were a whole host of of different answers, uh, and not many answers were as simple as saying, well, you know, proximity to failure. Right, they, they, they were very variable at times. They were ambiguous, and that is one of my key concerns. And, and the same goes for the term failure right, especially in the research. And if you look through the research and you look at uh, studies that have explored proximity to failure, you'll often see the term failure used with no definition provided, and sometimes definition, definition is provided, and you'll notice that it varies across studies. So I think what we're mostly interested in is the definition of momentary muscular failure. So this is the most objective definition of failure, and it's an involuntary form of set termination. So you don't choose when to reach momentary muscular failure, right? It occurs when, despite attempting to do so, you are no longer able to complete the concentric portion of your repetition with a full range of motion and without deviation from the prescribed technique of the exercise, right? So you can't really tell someone to perform three sets of 12 repetitions to momentary muscular failure because you're tying them down to a predetermined repetition target. And training to failure doesn't work like that. If you want someone to train to failure, 
you would instruct them to do three sets to momentary muscular failure mm-hmm. independent of a predetermined repetition target. So there are a number of studies that do use that definition, but there's also numerous other studies that don't. Some studies use a definition that uh, is more in line with what we can call volitional failure. And this permits individuals to terminate sets on their own accord when they themselves think they have reached failure. And you can imagine how across a group of participants being instructed to train to volitional failure, the true proximity to failure achieved would likely vary across participants. But if we're instructing people to train to momentary muscular failure and we're observing it on each and every set, well, of course, that is a much more valid and reliable way of using the term failure. Now, I think in research and in practice, this is the definition that most of us are interested in. Now, as a coach myself, uh, there have been many occasions on the gym floor where I've been working with clients and their technique breaks down before they reach momentary muscular failure. And of course, I have terminated the set. And we could call that technical failure. So on the gym floor, when we're working with clients, uh, often uh, we will often observe technical failure. And 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 I think it's important that on every exercise there is a there is a range of technical deviation that we're willing to apply. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can't just terminate a set as soon as someone's elbow, you know, slightly uh, comes forward when they're doing a bicep curl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, if it comes, if the elbow comes too high up, well, yeah, we have to draw the line somewhere. And you know, same goes for every exercise. And based on the safety demands of the exercise and other features of the exercise, like I said, there has to be a, a range of technical deviation that we're willing to apply. And as a coach, it should be in your best interest to prescribe exercises that your clients can competently perform all the way to momentary muscular failure, right? So yeah. the client's competency should map onto the difficulty and the complexity of an exercise, uh, especially if they're intermediate and advanced. You want to get the most out of their sessions, and so you want to be doing that. Of course, if you're working with a beginner, well, their competency isn't really going to map onto the complexity of any exercise because they're still learning. And yeah. so, you know, there has to be more leeway when you're working with a beginner. Uh, in research, however, when we're trying to uh, induce an adaptation and we only have a specific period of time, it should definitely be in the researcher's best interest to prescribe an exercise that all the participants can perform to momentary muscular failure, right? There should be no issues, uh, no technical issues in, in research. That, you know, you sh- we should be trying to design studies where participants are going all the way to momentary muscular failure. And that is why you'll often see exercises like a leg extension in research, like a Smith machine squat. Recently, I used the barbell bench press in my experimental mm-hmm. study, and I had quite an advanced sample of participants that were all able to get to momentary muscular failure without any technical breakdown. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that's making sense. There is a distinction we have to make between you know technical failure and mm-hmm. momentary muscular failure. But of course, the definition of momentary muscular failure itself also encompasses uh, technique, right? So we're trying to yeah. reach that point of failure, of objective failure with good technique within that range of technical deviation that you know we're going to apply to any given exercise. So with my meta-analysis, what I did was I I put more stock into the studies that employed that definition of momentary muscular failure. Because like I said, it is the most subjective definition of failure that we have in in the research. And it's the definition that I have most confidence in. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. So essentially the definition that we want to utilize to make sure that what we're saying is the type of failure that we were referring to earlier, the type of failure that actually uh, pauses tension on the muscles, the maximum amount of tension on the muscle within a given set is momentary muscular failure. So it is, and I'm glad that you repeated several times that it's involuntary involuntary mm-hmm. and so you can't mm-hmm. just tell people to do three sets of 10 
um, because mm -hmm. that's something that I see in everybody's program when a new client mm -hmm. comes to me. Uh, they'll say, well, I've been doing three sets of 10. And so that's how I mm -hmm. usually know that they probably haven't trained to ma true mm -hmm. muscular failure, except maybe by accident on a set or two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's very important to stress the involuntary component of, of that definition. And I think it goes both ways because you have these people who have never actually trained hard enough to elicit meaningful hypertrophy, but you also have, let's call them the bros, who states that they always train to failure, but then mm -hmm. you would look at their training and it looks very hard, but it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily cover that definition of hard mm -hmm. that we had at the beginning. So I'm, I think it's really valuable, the work that you're doing to clarify these distinctions. And my understanding is that in your meta-analysis, you compared um, the effect of failure versus non-failure within a set on muscle hypertrophy based on this definition of momentary muscular failure. So what were your findings? What is most effective? Because if you hear the uh, general wisdom of these bros that I've mentioned, which is still, in my opinion, still holds value mm -hmm. um, because ultimately it is what has been working according to some people in the gym mm -hmm. for decades. Um, well, according to this wisdom, you need to train to failure. To, to be able to elicit the maximum amount of muscle hypertrophy possible all the time. Mm -hmm. Did your findings um, agree with that? What did you find specifically? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So my findings were in line with previous research that has also investigated the influence of proximity to failure on muscle hypertrophy. But Many of the previous research studies have simply come to the conclusion that there is no statistically significant difference between training to non-failure and training to failure for hypertrophy. Now, uh -huh. I don't think that's a very practical conclusion, and that's led many people to think that training to failure isn't necessary at all. So mm -hmm. there are two sides to this story. There is a side that that purports training to failure is absolutely necessary all the time, right? And then there's yep. another side that says, well, hey, you don't have to train to failure at all because in research we see no difference between training to failure and non-failure. And I think there's flaws to, to both sides of those, those stories. And in, in my meta-analysis, the conclusion I came to was that currently there is no evidence to support training to momentary mus muscular failure on every set you perform superior to some non-failure training, right? That evidence right now uh, is, 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 is not in support of, of pushing two momentary muscular failure on each and every one of your sets. Now, in this data set, uh, there was only one study that looked at trained individuals, and I'm sure that many, many listeners uh, would be trained themselves, and so they're interested in, in the results um, that would be applicable to a more trained sample. So if we do look at that one specific study by Santaniolo in 2020, uh, what we see is a trained sample that had five years of resistance training experience, and they performed the single leg leg press and the leg extension over, over a long-term intervention. I can't remember the exact weeks, but it was an intervention design. And what the researchers found was that there was no difference between the two protocols. So this was a within subject design, which means that one leg was pushing to failure and the other leg was not pushing to failure. And they were actually keeping about one to two reps in reserve. So this was a well-designed study that actually allows us to approximate the proximity to failure achieved in the non-failure condition. And mind you, in many studies, we are actually unable to do that. And that is one of the key research limitations. Not only is there uh, no consensus definition of failure in the literature, but in non-failure conditions within studies, we also don't really know the true RIR that is being achieved by these participants. And that poses a challenge for deriving practical recommendations. But in this specific study on trained individuals, uh, like I said, there was no difference between the groups. And if you want to pay attention to the mean differences, the, the non-failure condition 
uh, actually experienced slightly more hypertrophy over the intervention period. So that is one study that is specific to trained individuals that we can look at. Now, the unique aspect of my meta-analysis was I not only looked at studies that compared failure and non-failure training over the course of multiple sets, mm-hmm. I also looked at a multitude of studies that compared or indirectly compared different proximities to failure using a velocity-based method of set termination. And all of the studies uh, within this analysis, there were six studies, they were all conducted on trained individuals, right? So we can look at that research, and that research is applicable to a trained population. Now, of course, some people may say, well, they're not as trained as you know, we are. They're not as trained as, as as many individuals who go to the gym. They don't have 10 plus years of resistance training experience. And my fundamental idea is that the, the short-term responses, like the neuromuscular fatigue, that is consequent to resistance training, uh, if, if that is the reason that, you know, pushing two momentary muscular failure in every single set, right, is, is not superior to, to non-failure training, if that is the reason, well, you know, that holds its ground across across individuals, no matter the resistance training experience. We all experience neuromuscular fatigue, mm-hmm. arguably more advanced individuals who can actually push close to failure and who are using heavy loads. They're arguably experiencing more fatigue than lesser trained individuals. So when we look at these uh, velocity-based uh, studies where researchers use a, a velocity loss prescription. So a researcher might say, I need you, you know, the participant, I need this participant to train to a 40% velocity loss. And so they record the velocity of each and every rep performed. And when the individual loses 40% of their first repetition velocity, the set is terminated. So we all know that as we approach failure, the the velocity of our repetitions drops off, even if we're trying to lift the load as fast as we can. And so if we have a group of individuals trained to a 40% velocity loss and another group of individuals training to a 20% velocity loss, we can discern that the 40% velocity loss group is pushing closer to failure. Now, of course, this approach comes with its own limitations because we can't translate velocity loss to RIR. We can just say they're mm-hmm. training closer to failure, especially if the exercise is the same and the relative load being lifted is also the same. And what I found in the analysis of these six studies on trained individuals was that pushing closer to failure or employing a higher velocity loss threshold isn't always better for muscle hypertrophy, right? We see s- seemingly equivalent hypertrophy across high velocity loss conditions and moderate velocity loss conditions. And when you look at the totality of the literature, my claim here is that train to failure isn't always better for muscle hypertrophy. Now, that doesn't mean you don't train to failure, right? It actually means you should employ various proximities to failure, including failure in your training. But it really does have to be dependent on the allocation of other training variables in in the program. And it has to be dependent on individual context and the the if you read the paper and if you read the conclusion you have to understand that the conclusion is based on the study designs that were included in the paper and those study designs and the research questions that uh, are encompassed by each of those studies those research questions aren't designed to tell each and every one of us how we should be approaching our own training they're designed to just provide you with some information that you can use to employ in practice. And really the way I see it is, is research is providing us with these pieces of information that we should be able to extract and then integrate into our framework of thinking, right? So we should all, as coaches, we should all have a framework of thinking that allows us to sit down and write up a program and understand why we're writing a program in a certain way and we should be able to integrate various pieces of information together and write a program that is based on the principles that we know will drive the adaptations that we're after. So we know our training has to be specific. We know that progressive overload needs to be present. We know we need to manage fatigue. 
And the results of these research studies and the results of my meta-analysis, the information we extract from this research, should feed into our understanding of the principles, right? So, for example, if I had a client who could, for whatever reason, only do one set for each of their muscle groups in a given workout, right, I would probably tell them to push all their sets to failure, right, independent of the results of my research study, because my research study, my meta-analysis, looked at studies that employed multiple sets, not just one set. Mm -hmm. So that is an example of how we should be able to bridge the gap between research and practice with a scientific perspective. So I'm trying to blend various pieces of information together, various lines of thinking together, and I'm trying to come to a conclusion on how I can program for my individual client in this context, who can only, for whatever reason, perform one set for each muscle group right, in a given workout. Now, of course, if I have another client who has all the time in the world and for whatever reason can perform 10 sets and wants to perform 10 sets for a given muscle group in a workout, well, my programming for them would change. I wouldn't be prescribing every single set to failure. And I'd be more strategic about the way I employ proximity to failure in that example in that context right so hopefully that not only gives you an understanding of where we're at with the current literature and of course the conclusion of our meta-analysis it leaves a door open for future research and this is one of the key concerns i have with some of the previous research studies that just say there is no difference between failure and non-failure training i can understand how people may misinterpret that and think that they don't need to train to failure at all but there's benefits to training to failure if you employ failure training strategically and it can be implemented into a training program it likely should be implemented into a into a training program and like i said the conclusion of our meta-analysis leaves door open for future research to have a say Right. We're just saying right now, if we look at the failure and non-failure studies right now, we have no evidence to support that training to momentary muscular failure, superior to non-failure training. And if we look at the velocity loss studies, we can also say that there's likely this, this non-linear relationship between proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy, where if we're very far from failure, we're likely not going to stimulate muscle hypertrophy to an observable and meaningful extent. And we also see that in the velocity loss studies that employ a very low percentage of velocity loss where participants aren't getting very close to failure at all but as we move closer to failure from there it doesn't seem to to have a linear effect on the hypertrophy achieved from our training and i would hypothesize that the neuromuscular fatigue consequent to each and every set we perform is likely one of the reasons that we're seeing this non-linear relationship and of course if we're only doing the one set for a muscle group in a workout well we don't really have any issues with fatigue because we perform one set for our chest on the barbell bench press and we move on and we, we we train our back and so the effects of neuromuscular fatigue on subsequent sets is limited and is essentially in that case non-existent um, of course there would still be some fatigue if you if you do a set to failure on a leg press and you you go and do a barbell bench press there is likely going to be some fatigue that feeds in, some systemic fatigue that feeds into your ability to perform on a on a barbell bench press, but hopefully you're getting my point here. So that's where I'm currently at with the findings and with and, and with how we should think about the findings in the context of you know our individual clients, in the context of, of other training variables as well. Because I think it's really important that as coaches and as you know individuals who go into the gym and and train for their own benefit you might not be a coach and that's fine and i think what i'm going to say goes for both you know general gym goers and coaches i think it's important that you do not you do not place all your focus on just one training variable don't be hyper focused on one given training variable because the adaptations we experience from resistance training are dependent on the interaction between many different training variables. So if we take a few steps back and we think about the criteria for heart that I discussed earlier, and I'm still really formulating my thoughts as to how to best develop a criteria for the term hard, but right now, based on what we spoke about earlier, we have volume, we have proximity to failure, 
and we have exercise execution. Mm -hmm. Of course, if we're not executing exercises very well and we're not pushing our sets close to failure, it doesn't matter how much volume we're doing. We're really not going to be getting the ideal results from our program. We're, we're likely not going to be, quote unquote, maximizing muscle hypertrophy. So if you're placing all your focus on volume, you might be bottle you, you might be bottlenecking your long-term progress. Same goes if you only ever focus on exercise execution and you don't push your sets hard enough and you're also not completing enough volume within a session and within a week to stimulate muscle hypertrophy adaptations, right? So in the context of the term hard, we need to place an equal amount of focus on those three components because they remember they they operate on different levels. So exercise execution operates on the level of a rep, proximity to failure on the level of a set, volume on the level of a session, and potentially across a week. So it makes sense that we place an equal amount of attention on each of these variables. And we understand that their interaction is what will drive our results in the gym, is what will drive the adaptations that we are after. So hopefully that makes sense. And yeah, hopefully listeners understand the findings and how they can be thought about and interpreted. Thanks for that explanation, Martin. What I really like about your position and the work that you've done in the meta-analysis is that it aims to bridge that gap between the two sides of the story that you mentioned at the beginning of this latest answer, where you were saying that some people think, we were, I was saying that some people think that you must always train to failure. And then you also commented, well, and now because of previous research on failure, now there's a, a um, cluster of people who believe the opposite, where you never need to train to failure to elicit mm -hmm. hypertrophy. But what your, mm -hmm. what I got from your answer is that um, you, at this moment in time, based on this research you've done, believe that both failure and non-failure training have a place within a training program. What mm -hmm. matters is the context and the interaction of momentary muscular failure training with the other um, components of the definition of hard, so volume and exercise execution. So with that, you mentioned also that at this moment in time, we, we can't state that momentary muscular failure is absolutely necessary in every single set for hypertrophy, likely mm -hmm. because of these interactions, mm -hmm. as well as the price we have to pay in terms of neuromuscular fatigue. And um, so what I'm wondering here is, if somebody decides that in their own personal context, it's for some ex for a given exercise, they don't want to train to failure, but they still want to train within close proximity to elicit muscle hypertrophy. Is there a consensus on, or what are your thoughts on how close to failure they ought to be in order mm -hmm. to um, equate that stimulus somewhat to training to full mm -hmm. failure? Mm -hmm. That's a very common question that I get asked. And unfortunately, I don't have a direct answer, or at least I'm not sure if I can give a direct answer to that question based on my understanding of how a program should be designed um, to elicit muscle hypertrophy. So, what I mean by this is I think that the way you employ proximity to failure on the gym floor needs to be dependent on the exercise performed, it needs to be dependent on the order of exercises in the program, it needs to be dependent on the number of sets that you're performing, it needs to be dependent on the subsequent workouts that you have coming up. So it's impossible to really give a direct answer to that question, especially when considering, this is a, something I mentioned earlier, especially when considering that in the current research, it's very hard to sometimes interpret the true RIR that is being achieved in these non-failure conditions. And this is going to be one of the, I guess, cornerstone uh, methods that I employ in my research. I think what will make my research unique is the fact that I'm going to be using a subjective repetitions and reserve prediction uh, method to control or at least uh, monitor and control 
proximity to failure in my non-failure conditions. So mm-hmm. this way, we can actually discern the RIR being achieved by the participants and create or develop better practical recommendations. So overall, what I think uh, needs to be done uh, as a coach or as a as a trainee, I think what what needs to be done is 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 looking at proximity to failure in an adaptive manner. So there's no reason why you have to stick to the same proximity to failure over the course of a whole session on each and every one of your sets, right? There's no reason why you only ever have to train to a two RIR. Um, we know that you have to be close enough to failure, right? And we know that you don't have to push all the way to failure. So how can we use, we know that you don't have to push all the way to failure on every single set of your sessions. So how can we use that information to create a program that is going to work really well? And an example that I often give is if you've, if you're performing three or four exercises for the same muscle group within a given session, and that's an off, that's a very common approach that I see employed. We might see individuals perform, you know, a chest and, and triceps session where they might do three exercises for the chest maybe even four and then some tricep exercise afterwards. It's probably a good idea on, on your first exercise, especially if it's a compound movement, like let's say an incline barbell bench press, it's probably a good idea to keep some reps in reserve on that exercise. Because again, I mentioned this earlier, if you go to failure on every single one of your sets on that incline bench press, you are going to be in a world of pain. And that's really going to affect your ability to perform on subsequent exercises, right? So again, a lot of people get caught up into into thinking about how proximity to failure influences the stimulus in, in one given set, right? But what we really need to be concerned about is the effects of proximity to failure across a whole session and how all mm-hmm. these sets are going to add up. So the way I usually program for my clients if they're doing a chest and, and tricep session is two to three reps in reserve on, on an inclined bench press, which is, is likely close enough to failure to stimulate a response because we're, we're we're getting really close to performing the maximal number of repetitions we possibly can with a given load but we're also preserving some of our capacity and limiting any excessive neuromuscular fatigue and if we then move on to something like a flat dumbbell press right it's our second exercise so we're getting closer to the end of the session you know we're slightly fatigued but we're not too fatigued we can probably get away with pushing the flat dumbbell press a little closer to failure especially considering that it's likely taxing the chest musculature in a slightly different way due to the bench angle, et cetera. And so I would probably program that flat dumbbell press to a one to two RIR. So getting really close to failure. And if we are finishing off with something like a chest fly, we could probably push that all the way to failure, right? And then you do your tricep work and and you'd move on. So hopefully with that example, it makes sense how I think you should employ proximity to failure in an adaptive manner based on the exercises you're performing, the order of those exercises, and all the other variables that um, also need to be considered. So it's very common to say that to hear people say that you know you have to be within three reps shy from failure or four reps shy from failure or five reps shy from failure. And really based on the current research, we don't actually know what where that threshold point lies so i mentioned earlier that i think there is this non-linear relationship between proximity failure and muscle hypertrophy which means that there is a threshold point that we have to meet and there's likely an upper limit but Mm -hmm. we don't know how these points translate to rir right so to be safe you know you have to take most of your sets really close to failure and if you read the practical applications of our meta-analysis what we say is that we advise most people reaching close proximities to failure, and then they can include failure training into their program uh, based on you know, a variety of considerations and factors that we go on to list. So for example, performing your last set on an exercise may be a good approach, or maybe, perform, maybe performing the last set of an exercise to failure, sorry, may be a good approach. Maybe um, biasing failure training to your single joint exercises versus multi-joint exercises is also a good approach. Again, those factors are, are listed there. And hopefully in the context of the, the workout example that I provided where we're pushing the last set of our session to failure, hopefully it makes sense how the cost of that 
of that workout would be, and when I say cost, I mean the fatigue cost of that mm -hmm. workout would be much lower than if you were to take all your sets to failure. And I would argue that the stimulus achieved with that type of a workout would likely be greater than the stimulus achieved if you did take all your sets to failure or if you performed all your sets to a two RIR or a three RIR just because, you know, you might think that the threshold point is three RIR. So if you train a three RIR, you're getting all the gains that you possibly can and taking it any further than that isn't going to get you anywhere. That's not necessarily the conclusion that I think holds its ground based on the research that we have and based on our understanding of how all these variables interact. So I think it's really important to, to zoom out when you're thinking about these topics. And like I said, think about the interaction and not necessarily the specific action of any given variable, right? So, you know, hopefully listeners have understood by now that when I provide an answer to these questions, I'm always trying to consider interactions over just actions. Because in practice, we simply can't get away from that. Uh, so hopefully that answers your question. And hopefully with my future research, we'll be able to provide a, a more clarified answer to that question. And, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, in the coming years, I can say, you know, the threshold point for this particular exercise and for this particular study design was, you know, XRIR. Um, and at this point in time, I'm just not very confident providing a specific value uh, to tie down. I'm not very confident on tying down a specific value to that threshold point. Um, so that's that's my perspective. That's my take on it. And hopefully, yeah, the listeners understand how proximity to failure can be applied adaptively over the course of a workout. Thank you. And yes, it absolutely does answer my question. In fact, it also vibes with my own personal biases because the way the given the example you gave is pretty much how I program uh, proximity to failure for my own clients. So it makes mm -hmm. me think, oh, well, I've not done something uh, too silly so far as a coach. Yeah. Um, but also I think it highlights what I, in my opinion, is the biggest takeaway from this episode, or at least the biggest takeaway for me, which is that you don't want to hyper-focus on only one component of a training program for the goal of muscle hypertrophy. You need to take that one component into consideration and uh, in and of itself, but also in how it interacts with the other components of the mm -hmm. program. So exercise execution, volume and um and proximity to failure contribute to how hard you need mm -hmm. to train and they interact with one another but there are also many other components exercise order exercise type uh frequency how you mm -hmm. which is how you distribute that volume across the week and they all play a role in increasing the fatigue cost of each session and of the program mm -hmm. as a whole but also in increasing the stimulus and ultimately mm -hmm. what I believe we're trying to do is maximize the stimulus and while minimizing the fatigue cost so that we can keep training for as long as possible before needing a longer mm -hmm. recovery phase like a deload, for example. Yeah, so I would say we're just trying to limit any unnecessary fatigue. At the end exactly. of the day, fatigue is a byproduct of hard training and any training that will stimulate muscle hypertrophy. And sometimes, uh, sometimes, it's actually important to, to push close to failure or to failure mm -hmm. and not shy away from the fatigue cost. Because if you never get to the point of failure, well, I would be somewhat skeptical about your ability to predict RIR accurately. So sometimes the fatigue yeah. is actually worth it, right? Now, you know, take from that what you will. Uh, that doesn't mean it's going to be worth it every week or every session, but sometimes it's going to be worth it. And there's nothing wrong with experiencing some excessive fatigue right here and there, as long as over time you're doing the best you can to limit unnecessary fatigue that may compromise the quality or the productiveness of subsequent sets and subsequent workouts. And at the end of the day, the example I provided 
that's just my preferred way of programming. And the reason that I program that way is because I think it works well and, uh, and it fits within my understanding of the principles that drive muscle hypertrophy. So if we think about those principles and we think about specificity and we think about progressive overload and we think about fatigue management, management uh, there's, there's various ways in which you can write a program and, and prescribe a method to your clients. And as, as long as it makes sense within the framework of principles um, that you understand to drive hypertrophy, and as long as you're considering all these variables and how they interact, you can come up with your own training programs and your own training methods that are also quite effective. And so I urge listeners to you know, consider uh, my workout example, but to also create their own framework of thinking based on the principles, based on the variables that we know we can adjust within a training program. So for example, if we adjust the load that we're lifting, we are going to, by default, be influencing the way the principles are applied, right? So if we look yeah. at specificity, there is a difference between training for strength and training for muscle hypertrophy, right? For muscle hypertrophy, we were more focused on training muscles and uh, exposing our muscle fibers to mechanical tension. And for strength, well, it's more so training specific exercises that we want to get stronger with. And the load really is the key stimulus for strength gains. We need to be lifting a sufficient enough load to get stronger. And so what I'm doing is just taking a step back from there, looking at what can influence specificity. Well, proximity to failure can, because mm-hmm. proximity to failure can influence the tension achieved within a given set, mm-hmm. right? And that's probably more conducive to muscle hypertrophy than it is strength. And so I'm making my decisions based on that understanding, right? So how does proximity to failure influence the application of these principles that I know will drive the adaptations that I'm after? And so it's important that as a coach or as a trainee, you have your own framework of thinking that you use to construct your programs Right. And like I said before, the information you extract from research studies should just guide your decision making. The information can almost act as a clue. Right. It's giving you clues as to how these variables can be applied and and how they influence or how they can influence the the principles um, that we really should be using to to cement our understanding of programming. Right. There's many different methods that can work there's many different training programs that can work if if they work that's because they influence the principles in a certain way whether you know it or not and it should be in your best interest to know how a specific method can influence um, the application of those those principles and and i think that's a really important takeaway and that's something that we really emphasize at jps when we're teaching our courses we we don't really teach clients how to how to write programs, right? Mm-hmm. I might give them an example as to how I would write a program, as I did earlier. And of course, that's just one example of many different ways I can write a program. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to teach is, is okay, here are the principles that we need to understand. Here are the variables. You know, this is what hard training is. Let's try and develop a criteria for hard training. And let's now try and integrate all of that. To, to come to a conclusion as how to how a program can be best designed for an individual client um, based on their individual context. Yeah, that's a perfect note to end this on. The second greatest takeaway of the episode, which will help all of the listeners avoid dogmatism in terms of choosing a method. There is no one method that's better than the others. What's important is to consider, to understand the principles and find a way to apply them that works in your own context, dear listener. Mm -hmm. So Martin, thank you very much for being so generous with your time. Before we conclude this conversation, is there anything that you want to plug? Let the listeners know and I'll add all of the links in the show notes. Uh, there isn't much that I, I'd like to plug. I guess you can check me out on on Instagram, uh, Miss Emma Fitness with a double underscore at the end. You mm-hmm. can also check out all the the JPS um, Instagram pages we have, so JPS Health and Fitness, and also JPS Education. We can find a lot of our education content and any information pertaining to the education services that we provide. And of course, 
be sure if you're interested in in what we spoke about today, be sure to stay tuned for future research uh, that will surface in the coming months. I've got research that is looking at RIR accuracy in resistance trained individuals. I've also got research, like I mentioned earlier, looking into the influence of proximity to failure on neuromuscular fatigue and uh, a lot more projects um, that will also surface in in the coming years as well as I work through my PhD and as I try to to ask better questions and and hopefully answer those questions in a sufficient enough way for people to to practically apply. Perfect. Thank you very much, Martin. I'll definitely stay tuned to see that research. It sounds really intriguing. Good luck with your PhD. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in and I'll speak to you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to this interview. I look forward to your feedback. To connect with Martin or to read his meta-analysis, you find all the links in the show notes as usual. Also, I have a special announcement. At the moment, I'm not taking on any new client for 2022, but I am open for consultations for clients who want to get started in 2023. So if you want to make 2023 your fitness year with my help, I would be honored. Please fill out the application form that's linked in the show notes and I'll be in touch in max 72 hours to schedule your complimentary consultation. I only have three spots available for the beginning of 2023, so don't miss out. I look forward to hearing from you and until next time. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.